The Stanton-Parkersburg Turnpike Alliance in Beverly, West Virginia is proud to present Holding Rugged Ground, an audio history of the Civil War along the Stanton to Parkersburg Turnpike. Written by Carrie Noble Klein. Tents, they just moved in here. There were tents on this hill and tents on that hill. And during the night, the Confederate Army had moved in here on his farm. They had just occupied it. During the Civil War, the Stanton-Parkersburg Turnpike, and then south of here, the James River Canal Turnpike were the main routes over the mountains. And any large troop movements had to use them because you had to have the roads to bring supply wagons to support your troops. Battle of Rich Mountain, Battle of Allegheny Mountain, you know. They were all along the Stanton of Parkersburg Pike. Really, they were fought for the possession of it or the control of it. But at the time of the Civil War, it was just a small valley of grazing animals and gardens and real small farms. When you are moving an army, particularly with artillery, you could really tear up the road in a hurry, and if you were in the off-season when it was wet, like early spring, you could do a lot of damage. The armies tore up the road. <laughs> Didn't matter to them, except it was more inconvenient. And of course, this was ideal, this, this location, with the hills and if you wanted to control the pike, what better place? Because it was a wagon road, and it was one of the few roads where you could move troops and supplies and caissons and all those things that armies need to move, it became militarily very, very important to the war effort. And many battles were fought along it. And I'm sure that the people who lived along it, their lives were just permanently affected by this. They had to be. During the war, my grandfather had a hole shot through his hat one time when he was carrying a message over to Rich Mountain to one of the soldiers. My father, his uncle, was a Confederate officer during the war between the states. The Huttons were local Confederates, of course. Well, yes, they participated considerably because Eugenius was killed at the Battle of Winchester. He was shot off of his horse before breakfast. I always thought that was sort of sad to get up in the morning and get, not even have breakfast shot off your horse. Sad. That Civil War was sad.
Beverly changed hands from Union to Confederate seven times during the war. And during one of those conflicts, one of my grandmother's brothers was being married, and they had tables set up in the hallway, and they had him loaded with all kinds of wonderful cakes, homemade cakes. And the Union soldiers came in and picked one up and said, he said to the others, golly boys, it's gingerbread. And with that, they just cleaned out all the cakes that they had ready for the wedding. And they had my grandmother in the bed and told the soldiers that she had scarlet fever in order to keep them out. She was about 12 years old. Grandmother Hutton, they'd stolen her mother's violin, and she prized it so, and she said, saddle my horse, I'm going after that violin. She went up the road and caught up with them and went to the captain of the Union Army and demanded the violin. And they gave her the violin back. And the violin is still in the family. Betsy Dilley came into the kitchen area and her pantry, and there were a couple soldiers, you know, wandering around the kitchen, and one of them started in the pantry, and she said, oh, don't go in there, don't go in there, we've just had typhoid fever here, and I've thrown all the clothes in there, and they didn't go, and this was where all the hams and all the goodies that they had to eat were stored, and they didn't go in the pantry. <laughs> Civil War soldiers and logisticians had a tough road to hoe, particularly moving large forces cross-country became a, a logistics nightmare. As late as the Civil War, some of the logistics requirements were satisfied by people called sutlers, who traveled with the army and set up tents to sell items to the troops. As a matter of fact, the uh, term hooker came from that era. General Joe Hooker had women travel with the force. So the men would have some diversions from battle, and the story goes that the visiting general was inspecting Hooker's command and wanted to know who those women were, and somebody said, well, they're Hooker's, and uh, therefore the term. You awful good-looking woman. Can you skin a possum? I'm Presbyterian. We don't bathe. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's your lucky day. I don't either. <laughs> hey, you got any husky? Anybody got any husky with it? Old Joe Hooker sitting on his horse, looking just like he is lost, looking like he don't know what to do nor where to go. Old Joe Hooker is a plum full of liquor, can't you hear that humming? The rebel Johnnies are a coming, kiss your old black bottle goodbye. <laughs> But you look at the horses and wagons, you know, it was, it was difficult just hauling or finding enough food for the draft animals to move the artillery pieces and, and the other things that the uh, Army needed. And of course, horses and wagons, uh, draft animals, when they could, would forage 
for food and pasture. But in this terrain, this heavily wooded, very steep and rocky terrain, there was very little opportunity for forage. So a lot of that had to be carried. And in 1861, there were little more than trails. The Stanton Parkersburg Turnpike was one of the few in this whole region of the country that could be classified as a road. And today we wouldn't classify it as that. But soldiers moving on foot in terrain that was extremely hostile and difficult to navigate. In many cases, in boots and, and shoes that they provided themselves that weren't necessarily very durable for that kind of trek. That rucksack or backpack was extremely heavy, unwieldy. But the accounts you read of soldiers during the Civil War, you hear very few complaints about that. I think the heaviness of the pack was a minor problem compared to the other things you were facing. Snowstorms, heavy fogs, uh, it would be easy to get lost, disoriented, walk off the side of a cliff, lose horses, wagons, oxen. There's no way it would have been easy. After you get out of the mill quick, there's a trail that goes over the mountain. They call it the Yankee Trail. That was during the Civil War. They went from there, down Sugar Run, past Adolph, and then they went up a place called Schoolcraft into Buckhannon. You can still see the old trails, just like there was. So I know exactly where they went. Both armies used the turnpikes to establish positions here. But the Confederacy had an advantage at first because Western Virginia was part of Virginia and Confederate troops could recruit in Western Virginia without, quote, invading the state. For the Union to do so, for the most part, required crossing the Ohio River and making a strong political statement as Northern armies come into Virginia. So we have Union forces massing along the Ohio River and in camps of instruction around Cincinnati, Ohio. And Confederate forces trying to recruit in western Virginia, but not being particularly successful because of those mountains, because of the difficulty of transportation. And that was one of our grievances, you know, when we wanted to become a state, that we were neglected, that monies weren't spent in this part of the state for road upkeep. Western Virginians were always disgruntled that they weren't getting a fair shake in Richmond. The turnpike system in part was to appease this, but they still felt that they were isolated and didn't get a fair shake. Western Virginians were unhappy with Richmond long before the Civil War came along. And the transportation and the internal improvements were the biggest reasons for that, as well as differing lifestyles and taxation issues, representation issues, and all of that. But the separation of West Virginia as a state wasn't just because of the Civil War. It was an outgrowth of this difference between the lowlands of eastern Virginia and mountainous western Virginia, and it really was two different areas. began, Virginia reached all the way from the Atlantic Ocean to the Ohio River, 
roughly divided into two separate regions and cultures by the Appalachian Mountains. East of the mountains had been settled very early in the 16 and 1700s by people mostly of English descent. West of the mountains was settled much later, late 1700s, early 1800s. Those were mostly of Scotch, Irish, and German descent. When Virginia decided to break away from the Union and join the Confederacy, there were many people in the western region of the state who didn't agree with that. West of the mountains, you had something that was only a couple of generations removed from the absolute nasty pioneer frontier culture, where you were just trying to eke out a living and hope the Indians didn't kill you. Mushrat, mushrat, makes you smell so bad. You've been laying around that farmer's field, eating up all he has, eating up all he has. two or three generations later, you didn't have to worry about the Indians killing you anymore, but you still weren't much beyond just eking out a living. On the eastern side of the mountains where you had larger land holdings, you had a lot of slave owners. You had a different dominant culture. There actually was slavery here. Travelers Repose had slaves. Down at Green Bank, there is a Liberty Presbyterian Church, and they do have a slave quarters in that church. It was built in 1851. And as you went further south down in the Hillsborough area, a number of slaves on those big farms down there. So yeah, it does amaze people that there were slaves here in the mountains even. Most of the slave owners in Randolph County were concentrated in the Taggart Valley in the area from around Beverly up to around Elkwater. Everybody owned slaves. The work was done at that early period there by slaves. The slaves, they had grown up there. They didn't know anything else. Didn't care to go anyplace. They were happy. They were well taken care of. Slaves were... Well, it depends upon your family. As I understood it, the Hutton's treated their slaves very well. Adam C. died in 1840, and I believe the uh, appraisal of his estate lists something like 40 slaves. He was the largest slave owner in the county by far. Most of the slave owners in Randolph County had three or four slaves. Those people who owned slaves in Randolph County refugeed out of this area during the Civil War to 
relatives in the eastern part of Virginia because the Union held the area for most of the war and their assets weren't considered to be safe here. Be free. When the Union Army came across the mountain, my people left and went to Virginia. Stayed there until the war was over. And so many of the young boys went in the Army then for the Confederacy in this area here. And that's why some of my folks, most of them, refugeed because their boys were in the Confederate Army and they thought that the Union would not like those individual families because they had sons and relatives in the Confederate Army. You know, Stonewall Jackson was pretty close to us because after all, Randolph County was made part of Harrison County and Stonewall Jackson was born near Clarksburg, you know. Much of Western Virginia was severely divided in sentiment. It was not all Union sentiment, as some people like to think today. In many of the counties that are West Virginia, there was Southern or secessionist sympathy. But it was very mixed throughout many of our counties to where we had men and in some cases a few women agreeing to keep their arms locked in the courthouse or some other safe place so that if arguments broke out, there wouldn't be any terrible violence. As soon as Virginia voted to secede in 1861, there were people in the western counties who were immediately rallying to stay in the Union and to separate from Richmond if that's what it took. My grandfather was Confederate, that was Calvin Hart, and he had a brother, Bun Hart, Confederate, and it was a John Hart, he was a nephew, and they had a brother-in-law, and all four of them went to the Confederate Army. But my grandfather, Calvin Hart, had another brother who had gone out, I believe, to Kansas, and he was in the Union Army, they didn't claim him, I don't think, until the war was over. And he had lived in Beverly, and he disowned the rebels back here, and they disowned him. Hugh Hart sold his house, moved to Kansas, and enlisted in the Union Army out there. And we have letters from him talking about how important it was to save the Union and how strongly he felt about this and chastising his relatives back in Virginia for seceding and supporting this rebellion. They made up after the war. The story I got. A lot of families divided, especially in this area they called West Virginia. Some went to the south, some went to the north. Brothers. And then, of course, there was the Joseph Hart lived up at the top of Rich Mountain. Their house was involved in the battle. And they had a number of sons, and one of the sons was David Hart, who led the Union troops, served as their guide. And he then went and enlisted with the Indiana Regiment that he had met there at Rich Mountain and served with them for a year or two, ended up dying of disease in the Union Army. People just had to go with what they felt, and, you know, you have the feeling that a lot of people just wished it would leave them alone, but... It wouldn't leave them alone. They had to. They had to deal with it, one side or the other. People up there shouldn't have really had anything to do with it. They didn't care whether they were Southerners or Northerners or whatever. 
They were just happy to be living up there in that beautiful valley, Tigers Valley. Elder John Klein was a pacifist that did not believe in fighting, was very much against the war between the states, slavery, and the secession movement. He wanted to see all the states remain within and not divide up. And he knew that this would really be a blot on their history. From my diary on Tuesday, January the 1, 1861, this is what I write. Secession means war, and war means tears and ashes and blood. It means bonds and imprisonments and perhaps even death to many in our beloved brotherhood, who I have the confidence to believe will die rather than disobey God by taking up arms. So it was a very volatile situation in April and early May 1861. And after the secession ordinance vote on May 23rd, the Union General, George McClellan, was essentially waiting for a good political excuse to invade Western Virginia with his armies. And Confederate partisans gave him that by destroying some bridges on the B&O Railroad. McClellan moved his armies into Western Virginia in late May and occupied much of the B&O Railroad route to Grafton. The B&O Railroad was a vital supply line for the Union Army, and so they had outposts all along it. So most of the actions in West Virginia during the Civil War were a result of one side or the other trying to protect either the B&O Railroad or the Virginia Central or Virginia-Tennessee Railroad. So those were the, the ones that were here during the Civil War. The Baltimore and Ohio Railroad through northern West Virginia was a prize. Whatever side controlled the railroad would control the war. Yeah. Although I don't think it was well thought out, the railroad became the first strategic and tactical weapon ever used in warfare. Both sides vied for it. And the misfortune of the Baltimore and Ohio was that it was in the, in the borders between north and south so that it was continually under stress. The Battle of Philippi was in a measure to protect those interests, and the federal troops came in by railway cars to Grafton, which was the nearest junction with the B&O, and then they marched to Philippi to dislodge the Confederates and hold ground to protect the B&O. The Philippi Bridge was the scene of the battle. Who controlled the bridge controlled the access to Grafton. Confederates were there, and the Union forces marched down from Grafton in rather superior numbers. The Upshur Grays of the Company of the 25th Virginia was formed in Upshur County around Buchanan. They were at Philippi. They went up and volunteered there and were involved in the battle there. Then they were also involved at Rich Mountain and were one of three companies up on the mountain, actually in the battle. And then, of course, there were men from the same counties that were volunteering for the Union regiments. And loyal Virginia regiments, the Virginia U.S. regiments, were being formed at the same time, mostly up in Wheeling, but they were coming from all of these counties. And there was recruiting particularly being done in Fairmont and Clarksburg and Morgantown. The farther this direction you got, the more prevalent the Southern sentiment was.
Now I have some material from the diary of James Edward Hall. Mr. Hall himself published it after the war. He was born 11-27-1841 and died January 1st, 1915. He lived on Elk Creek near Philippi in Barber County. He'd been sent to school in Morgantown at the Monongalia Academy, and with war stirring, he'd returned home and joined the local militia company called the Barber Grays. The company was mustered into the Confederate Army as Company H of the 31st Virginia Infantry on May 14, 1861. Hall was the fourth corporal. We remained in Philippi until the 3rd of June. Early on that morning, we were startled from beds by the firing of the enemy's cannon. Fire! Shells fell thick and fast among us, wounding a few. Colonel Porterfield immediately ordered a retreat. We marched to Beverly the same day, a distance of 38 miles. We were much exhausted. When we arrived, my cousin Will Jarvis and I entered a deserted dwelling. Most of the citizens, on hearing the cannonading, had left and immediately laid ourselves down on the naked floor of the hall and soundly slept, our canteens serving us for pillows. It was a, a genuine shirt tail retreat. The Confederates, less than a thousand strong, ran out at daylight when the Federals began to fire cannon into the town. It's affectionately called the Philippi Races because the Confederates beat a very hasty retreat out of town. It was a bloodless victory, although it's been called the first land battle of the Civil War, and I think fairly so. Camp Garnett on Rich Mountain in Randolph County. It started in June of 1861 by General Robert Garnett, who assumed command from Colonel Porterfield after the Philippi disaster. He put Colonel Heck here at Camp Garnett, and they built fortifications to protect the pike, while the general and another contingent went to Laurel Hill to do the same thing, protect the pike out that way. We marched that night to the foot of Laurel Hill. Next morning, we advanced to the western side of the mountain and encamped. Then commenced a series of hardships pertaining to camp life, especially where but few comforts can be had for soldiers. The cooking department was the greatest obstacle. Our mess consisted of Dr. Armstrong, W.D.F. Jarvis, M.M. Ryder, Lieutenants G.T. Thompson and I.V. Johnson, my brother Jasper, and myself and none knew the first principles of cooking. Where's the salt? We learned, however, very rapidly. Oh, there's one thing I almost forgot. Granny's old rooster, we cooked in the pot. We cooked in three hours, and so they did say. We heard of some Yankees, and we run away, and it's hard times. We stayed there, going through regular drills every day until July. Camp Garnett on Rich Mountain in Randolph County. It was started in June of 1861 by General Robert Garnett, who assumed command from Colonel Porterfield after the Philippi disaster. He put Colonel Heck here at Camp Garnett, and they built fortifications to protect the pike, while the general and another contingent went to Laurel Hill to do the same thing, protect the pike out that way. We marched that night to the foot of Laurel Hill. Next morning, we advanced to the western side of the mountain and encamped. 
Then commenced a series of hardships pertaining to camp life, especially where but few comforts can be had for soldiers. The cooking department was the greatest obstacle. Our mess consisted of Dr. Armstrong, W.D.F. Jarvis, M.M. Ryder, Lieutenants G.T. Thompson and I.V. Johnson, my brother Jasper, and myself, and none knew the first principles of cooking. We learned, however, very rapidly. Oh, there's one thing I almost forgot. Granny's old rooster, we cooked in the pot. We cooked in three hours, and so they did say. We heard of some Yankees, and we run away, and it's hard times. We stayed there, going through regular drills every day until July. McClellan finally enters Western Virginia personally at this time. He's kind of like a, a conquering hero to uh, many of the people as he rides in along the railroad and then down the turnpikes. The Union people come out to see him, hold up their children to see him, and wave flags and banners and handkerchiefs. Uh, McClellan quickly decides that he's going to try to cut off or flank Garnet's army at the foot of Rich Mountain on the Stanton Parkersburg Turnpike and bypass it from the south, get on the turnpike behind the Confederates. A local boy named David Hart, whose father owned the house on top of Rich Mountain, came into the Union camp on the evening of the 10th and said, I can take troops around. And uh, they agreed, after they questioned him thoroughly, they agreed to let him lead them. They did tell him that if you lead us wrong, you're dead. And he led them pretty much with a pistol at his head. This David, he was just a young fella. He knew the country. Yeah, he knew her all. He led them up this path through the woods and the laurel thickets and everything in the middle of the night, and it was raining, and they had almost 2,000 men, which I can't imagine 2,000 men on top of that mountain. <laughs> and they wandered around this mountain, and they got up to the top, and there were a couple of places where they missed the directions David had gotten nervous as they were getting to the top because he was not armed and didn't have a rifle, and he was nervous about being out in front, so they sent him back to the back, and then they got lost. <laughs> but they did find their way. They came out on top and then came along the ridge. So when they came up near the pass to the Hart House, probably to about the outskirts of the farm was when they ran across the Confederate pickets and the skirmishing started. David describes the din of the battle and said it sounded like they had 20 cannons. <laughs> they had one cannon, but David thought they had a lot more than that. Of course, for most of them, this was their first battle. And a lot of them were just young boys out for the first time. And it must have been just tremendously confusing and frightening and of course, they were coming down from up above, down into the pass, and the Confederates were behind the rocks in the stable in the house over here, firing up at them, lead going everywhere. And McClellan finally decides, I'll send you, General Rosecrans, around the flank, 
When you attack, I will move in with my regiments in front of the fort and attack there, and we'll have the Confederates trapped between us. When we do that, we will have General Garnett at Laurel Hill cut off because his turnpike retreat will be cut off if McClellan's troops can get to Beverly before he does. Some skirmishing took place on July 10. The main battle, of course, took place a couple miles to the rear of Camp Garnett on July 11. The battle comes off successfully. Uh, Rosecrans marches around Rich Mountain. A very difficult march without any artillery because it's too rugged. Gets up on the turnpike, fights a very hard-fought battle with a 300-man Confederate detachment on top of Rich Mountain, defeats them, and has the Confederates trapped. The only problem is McClellan has never done his share of the plan. McClellan has not attacked Camp Garnet, the fort at the foot of the mountain. He's fearful that Rosecrans has been defeated and paralyzed in fear he does nothing until he hears from Rosecrans the next day. The cautious Mike, I call him. He held fast throughout the day, waiting for what? The news to make the attack. And Pegram was dashing up and down the road and moving troops here and there. And At one point, one of the waves of federal attack up at the top of the mountain they came forward, they were pushed back by the cannon fire and retreated. And at this point, the Confederates let out a, a cheer. And they cheered. And McClellan heard this, and he thought his guys had been defeated. And so he never attacked. He just sat there. Rosecrans rides through the abandoned Confederate camp and notifies McClellan that he's won a great victory. The Confederates had scattered from Camp Garnet across Rich Mountain trying to escape. Some did, thanks to a very talented map maker named Jed Hotchkiss. His notes are the basis for the maps that we have today. And he later became famous as map maker for Stonewall Jackson. By 11 o'clock at night, the Confederates could not hold Camp Garnet with approximately 2,000 troops in their rear and 7,000 more in front of them they were outnumbered and they just gave up and they left the camp and they took off into the mountains. So they were going to try to get to Laurel Hill through the mountains and they became lost, turned around. This early in the war they surrendered because they were just dying of hunger. But most of the Confederates end up with Colonel Pegram, kind of a hapless commander, wandering across Rich Mountain and finally surrendering to McClellan two days later. And after the Battle of Rich Mountain, the Union came in, took control of the town, and kept a garrison here pretty much through the war. And I think that Southern sentiment hardened to some degree because people felt like they were being occupied by outsiders. The farther this direction you got, the more prevalent the Southern sentiment was. I think them blue fellers is the ones that's caused all the trouble because we didn't have no trouble up here before they came. They run all the game off the mountain. They went through my farm. They stole all my chickens. But it's just such a racket. There's a hollering and the carrying on and the big guns are going off. It's just, it's just can't believe it. What are they doing here anyway? Of course, before the Battle of Rich Mountain, Beverly was used as a staging and supply post for the Confederacy. 
And one of the treasured documents is a letter that was written from Robert E. Lee to Colonel David Goff, who was the prominent person in Beverly. He was a colonel in the local militia. And Lee sent him this letter about the arms they were shipping to supply the recruits there in Beverly. Here are these rifles coming to you, and you take charge of them and give them to the troops. So this was going on before Richmond. And then once the battle came, Goff and a lot of other families left town. Refugeed South is the term and left their buildings empty, and then his house ended up being taken by the Union and used as the Union Hospital in Beverly all through the war. McClellan gets his victory and marches to Beverly and has General Garnett trapped at Laurel Hill. Next morning at Laurel Hill, we immediately formed lines and commenced our line of march, a retreat. Our intention was to go by way of Beverly, But finding the road blockaded, the entire command changed directions to go through the counties of Preston, Tucker, Hardy, etc. We there understood that the entire command of Colonels Heck and Pegram was either killed or taken prisoner. We marched all that day and at night encamped on the opposite bank of Shaver's Fork of Cheat River, without anything to eat and much fatigued by the march. General Garnett had this whole wagon train of troops and supplies and equipment going on these tortuous mountain roads down Pheasant Run to Shaver's Fork and then up along Shaver's Fork towards Corix Ford, which is at what's now the town of Parsons. The accounts talk of equipment being strewn right and left. They were trying to get away and the Federals were pursuing them. Next morning we started early, crossing this same stream as many as three times in as many miles. About noon that day we first became aware of the presence of the enemy. They overtook our rear guard at Cheat River. A terrible fire ensued, our artillery firing into their ranks of four deep at the distance of 200 yards. The cries of the wounded could be heard and the flying of their guns into the air when struck by our shells could be distinctly seen by our men. Nobly did our men repel the advancing foe. Cheat River ran red with their blood as they attempted to charge our columns. After two hours of hard fighting, our forces retired from so unequal a contest, but not until our brave commander, General Garnet, had fallen. This was at Corix Ford, July 13th. He was the first general killed in the war and he had been a man of great promise, and everybody considered it very tragic. And then the rest of his troops kind of straggled across the mountains, and most of them did eventually make it back to Franklin or Monterey or someplace. But they had lost all their supplies. They were just totally disorganized. Lost. So the rest of his army scatters across the mountains into the wilderness, many of them ending up in what's now the Otter Creek Wilderness and nearly starving to death before they're rescued by a local trapper. And McClellan's victory is complete, and he doesn't hesitate. 
to use that great secret weapon that he's brought with him called the telegraph. The first use of telegraph by an army in the field occurred at Beverly. The first time in history. McClellan was very familiar with the telegraph and its use. He brought it to Western Virginia with him and strung the wire as he advanced and began to send a series of really dramatic Napoleonic-type telegrams to Washington that he had won great victories in Western Virginia. He had uh, annihilated the rebel army, were his words. Secession was killed in this country, was another quote. Very dramatic series of telegrams over a couple days that went to Washington. And this was amazing news. These were the first Union victories of the Civil War. And they caught the public's fancy. And newspapers echoed McClellan's telegrams in headlines throughout the country. McClellan became the young Napoleon, really the first battlefield hero the North had. And he was idolized. McClellan was called to Washington, but the federal troops remained. With the Union occupation there, a lot of the homes were expected to take in soldiers. Laura Arnold lived in Beverly. She was married to Jonathan Arnold, who was one of the most prominent men in the county, one of the biggest landowners. And she had come to Beverly as a young woman and married and stayed there. And... She was Stonewall Jackson's sister, Thomas Jackson's sister. Thomas Jackson had been to visit them numerous times before the war. We have accounts of him traveling in a stagecoach up the turnpike to Beverly to visit his sister. And when the war came, Laura and Jonathan Arnold had soldiers billeted in their home. Laura also was well-known as a nurse around town. She worked in the hospital and had six soldiers in the home and took care of them. The stories go that she tended both sides equally, that she would help whatever boy needed help. She became very well-known and beloved of the Union soldiers. And after the war, she was welcomed by the veterans' organizations. And we have glowing tributes to this gentlewoman who helped take care of the sick boys and made them feel at home. And everyone had soldiers billeted in their homes. and. You had to do this. It wasn't optional. And there was a lot of bitterness from that. And the federal troops built fortifications then on up the turnpike at Cheat Summit Fort and at Elkwater on the Huntersville Turnpike, south of Huttonsville. And then the Confederates tried to dislodge them then from the south and from the east. And the Confederates get a new commander. Robert E. Lee himself comes west. Lee came across the mountains with little staff. He had two slaves and he had two aides. They came over with a single wagon that held all the headquarters equipment. Now at this time, Lee was not in command. He's coming here as a facilitator or coordinator. Lee understands that with Garnet's death, that Western Virginia is almost lost to the Confederacy and that drastic measures are needed. And Confederate regiments from Tennessee, Georgia, North Carolina, and Arkansas even move into Western Virginia. So the Confederates actually have more soldiers in Western Virginia for that period of time than the Union Army. More than 10,000 men 
whereas the Federals have not even that many left themselves. Lee is focusing his action on the Tigert Valley and on the Federal works on Cheat Mountain, and he's overseeing General Loring, who's very jealous of Lee's presence, has seniority to Lee in the old U.S. Army, and had more experience. Loring was fighting Indians as a teenager when Lee was a kid in diapers, and Loring has more field experience, he's been in more battles, and he doesn't understand why Lee is here. And he responds by being recalcitrant, by not wanting to move forward. Again, it's Lee's first field command, and he's very leery to confront people. Lee's very anxious to attack the Federals and do it before the fortifications are complete. And Loring is delaying. He's building a supply base on the turnpike, and he's hesitant to move forward. And Lee is trying to prod him forward, and finally does so. But by this time, the Union works are complete, and the only chance the Confederates have is to try to find a flank route around these forts, the fort on Cheat Mountain and at Elkwater in the valley, much like George McClellan tried to do at Rich Mountain. Lee finds a route through great personal effort and the effort of some local surveyors who help him find unknown roads and trails. The Confederates are camped at an area called Valley Mountain at the base of Snowshoe Mountain. Lee is a very solid leader, and he becomes very popular right off the bat with the common soldiers because of the way he treats them. He lives like they do. He lives in a tent. He eats the same food they eat. And uh, they can identify with this man, Lee. But anyway, he had this complicated plan to try to dislodge the Federals at Cheat Summit and Elkwater simultaneously. And he was down at Valley Mountain, you know, at the pass near where Snowshoe now is. But he makes a fatal mistake. He's confronted by an Arkansas colonel named Albert Rust, who insists on leading the attack on Cheat Mountain with his 3rd Arkansas. Lee is reluctant to do this. Rust has no military experience. He's what we would call a political general. But he has connections in the highest places of the Confederate government. Rust is a very tall domineering man, and he appears to be perfectly fearless. And I think that Lee allows himself to be convinced by Russ's charisma, to let Russ lead this complicated attack where five brigades are going to surround these forts, the fort on Cheat Mountain and Elkwater. Russ will open the attack with musketry and the others will begin and the Federals will be trapped. And Russ has three days to get to his position. I mean, these are very difficult marches through the rugged mountains to get on the turnpike behind and around Cheat Summit Fort and Camp Elkwater in the valley. Returning to the diary, today, September 9th, a detachment of a few regiments prepared provisions for four days with the intention of going, we all presume, to attack the enemy on Cheat Mountain. Somebody will evidently be hurt as we are almost hourly expecting a decided movement at Lee's command, which is about 30 miles south of us and only about three miles from the main body of the Federal Army. September 10th. We have no news from our men who left us yesterday. They are, however, on Cheat Mountain, a few miles south of the pass. The Confederate brigades were marching from Camp Bartow on the Turnpike and from Valley Mountain in Pocahontas County. A few days after our arrival, a detachment of near 2,000 men started to the mountains for the purpose of attacking the Federal Army. We were, however, misled by our guide, and the enterprise consequently failed. 
It rained on us almost continually while in the mountains. Our provisions became perfectly saturated, and we were wet for two days in those chilly rains without provisions. They're talking here about when they advanced to the Greenbrier River, that would have been at Bartow, where Traveler's Repose is on the Stanton Parkersburg Turnpike. And they're talking about the, the Yankees being a cheat mountain pass. That would be Fort Milroy at Cheat Summit on the Stanton Parkersburg Turnpike. And they got in position successfully without detection. In spite of a fierce storm that struck the night before the attack, which was to be September 12, 1861, they were all in position. And Lee's plan had gone perfectly to this point. But the morning of the 12th dawned as a wet, drizzly, foggy morning. And Colonel Rust had taken his position less than a mile from Cheat Fort and captured some federal wagoners right at daybreak. Hold it right there where you are. And get your hands up easy. And and this was the downfall of the whole Confederate offensive, apparently. These wagoners convinced us that there were many more men in the fort than there were. There were about 3,000 men, we think, in Cheat Fort. But they convinced him that the fort was impregnable. They almost laughed that he said he was going to capture this fort at Bayonet Point. (laughs) Well, that'd be plum suicidal. The problem was he was listening to these stories from these wagoners and he was looking down on the fort from above while they're talking. And he could see these very strong defensive works. He could see where the trees had been cut. Over a hundred acres cleared and the trees fallen and, and left as a barrier, an abatis, it was called in French. It was a military term for trees that were felled and the branches were lobbed off and left as sharp points. He could see cannons behind the dugout earthworks. He could see a blockhouse right on the turnpike. And he convinced himself that this fort was impregnable and hesitated, did not attack. So the signal was never sent. The rest of the attack never happened. And the whole thing was a fiasco. Finally, some soldiers from the fort got word of the wagoners being captured and blundered into Rust. 200 Union men from the fort pitched into Rust's 1,500-man brigade in the rugged timber, the woods, the dense woods around the turnpike, and routed him. Neither side knew the strength of the other. The attack just kind of fizzled out. There have been some suggestions that a key company of the men that were supposed to be attacking Fort Milroy never got there because they found a still in the mountains. Now, whether that's true or not or just hard feelings, who knows, yeah. (laughs) There was skirmishing for two or three more days around Cheat Mountain and in front of Elkwater, but the end result was uh, defeat for the Confederates, defeat for Lee in his first campaign. Lee suffered personal defeat and humiliation here. He was nearly captured at one point while he was directing the effort between Cheat Fort and Elkwater near the turnpike. He lost his kinsman and tent mate, John Augustine Washington. He and Washington and a man named Walter Taylor lived in a tent together at Valley Mountain. Taylor and Washington were Lee's aides. Washington was killed in a uh, scouting expedition with Lee's son, Rooney Lee, who was a cavalry leader. And Rooney Lee barely escaped with his lot. Lee moved south. The Confederate Army falls back and much of it begins to retreat to the Kanawha Valley where Lee tries to get the bickering generals Floyd and Wise to put together an offensive that doesn't come off. And Lee eventually leaves Western Virginia in late October of 1861. So Lee had to go back to Richmond in defeat. 
who leaves in disgrace. He's known as Granny Lee in the Southern press, or Evacuating Lee. He had utterly failed to retake the turnpike. Confederates moved to Bartow, Traveler's Repose, as it was known at that time, at the base of Allegheny Mountain, and set up a camp there. The whole number of regiments belonging to this division of the Army marched to a branch of the Greenbrier River, which is about 10 miles from the Cheat Mountain Pass, where there are Yankees, rattlesnakes, and bears. A onmi id genus, and he notes that that means all of a kind. There was an inn on the Stanton Parkersburg Turnpike, at Traveler's Repose, and the Confederates built a fortification there, which they called Camp Bartow, named for a Georgian who'd been killed at First Manassas. Andrew Yeager had prophesied that the early battles of the Civil War would be along the pike at Traveler's Repose, and he wasn't shocked when he woke up one morning and saw the hills covered with tents. During the night, the Confederate Army had moved in here on his farm. Tents, they just moved in here. There were tents on this hill and tents on that hill, and they had just occupied it. And, of course, this was ideal, this this location with the hills. And if you wanted to control the pike, what better place? And they kept that camp going until November. And during the early part of October 1861, a uh, engagement took place at Traveler's Repose, properly known as the Battle of Greenbrier River. This is continuing with Hall's diary. The regiment to which I belong formed a part. Here on the 3rd of October 1861 was the Battle of Greenbrier River fought. The casualties on either side were not very great considering the forces engaged. On October 3, 1861, the Federal Army of about 5,000 men, masses on Cheat Mountain, marches down the turnpike to attack General Jackson at Camp Bartow. battle is primarily an artillery duel, which lasts all morning, early afternoon. The Federals have about 13 cannons, which they establish across the valley and began bombarding this Camp Bartow and Jackson's artillery answers. He, he rarely has five cannons he can use at any one time. And it's a, a fierce artillery duel, one of the first of the war, and uh, a very dramatic scene for the participants. There are many comical stories involved with it. After a while, the soldiers become more comfortable with these artillery shells and cannonballs screaming overhead, and they began to relax, laying against fence rails and, and behind trees, and they'll, they play cards, and some of them even fall asleep during this bombardment, believe it or not, because they've been without sleep, some of them for more than 48 hours. The Confederates held the position there, forced the Union troops back to their stronghold on Cheat Mountain. Well, uh, my grandmother, Eveline, who lived on Allegheny, was my source. She had 13 children, and Granny was a pistol. She really was. And um, 
she was about 12 years old when the army moved in on their farm on Allegheny. They were living on top of Allegheny. The Confederates figured they'd best move to top of Allegheny. General Ed Johnson made that decision, I think. They moved sometime between October the 3rd and December the 13th because the attack from Fort Milroy was on December 13th, 1861. General Milroy left his stronghold at Cheat Mountain and moved over against General Johnson at Allegheny Mountain, which gave him his nickname, Allegheny Johnson. It's recorded that the day of the battle that Ed Johnson, see, they were all so green, and most of them hadn't been in much of a battle except this artillery duel here, the Traveler's Repose, and Ed Johnson couldn't make them fight. They wouldn't expose themselves. So he lifted a rail off the rail fence and beat them, beat the soldiers, made them go out and fight. And this is the general doing this. Straight was the course to the top of the hill And the rebels their shots and shells Plowed furrows of death through the darling ranks And guarded them as they fell Just then came a horrible dying yell From heights they couldn't attain And those that do and death They were awakened that morning by a corner of the house being taken off by a cannonball and musket balls falling on the tin roof like hail. Well, her mother was sick, ill in the house and was not able to get up and walk. And during a lull in the battle, some of the officers came and got her. That vacated the house, took everybody out of the house because the house was directly in line of fire. And they took her on a litter. Two of them carried her down the hall to an officer's cabin. And while they were walking down the hall, a bullet went between the two litter bears right over her. But Ed Johnson drives the Federals back with a war club. He's waving a war club as he fights and cussing and drives them back. They successfully repulsed the Union troops there, but at a heavy loss. But among the dead who were left on the field was a boy with the curly hair. The tall, dark man who fought by his side lay dead beside him there. There was none to write to the blue-eyed girl the words her lover had said. And his mother at home awaits the news she'll only know he's dead.
and Evelyn Yeager Beard. If I remembered correctly, there were 19 men killed. After the fighting, the upstairs of their house was converted into a temporary hospital. Several of the wounded men died. And the Confederates go into winter camp, and the Federals do the same. And they stare at each other across 20 miles of airspace. They can see each other's campfires with a spyglass or, or telescope. And they weather a, just a miserable winter. Poor little turtle dove sitting in a pine Mourning for his own true love As I do now for my mine As I do now for mine The Confederates spent the winter over 4,000 feet high on top of Allegheny Mountain, and then the Federals were camped on top of Cheat Mountain at a similar elevation. And a bitter winter it was. At that altitude and that height, they spent a miserable time. The 12th Georgia Regiment suffered tremendously from the cold because they, they weren't used to this type of weather. And neither were the Virginia boys used to it that high up. Even horses froze standing up. On Allegheny Mountain, Cheap Mountain Dew. During the Civil War, you know, a lot of them froze. 1861 was probably the wettest, coldest year on record to that time. It rained almost every day in August, apparently. It snowed on August 13th on top of Cheap Mountain. There were snow flurries. The Cheap Mountain cold anyway. <laughs> You get a little, little wind behind that, boy, it'll put her way on down there. The temperature way down. This is material from a statement made November 4, 1926, by Evelyn Yeager Beard of Arbivale, West Virginia. She recalled that in the fall and winter of 1861 and 62, quote, I remember them as being not very warmly clothed and shivering with cold. Not being used to the cold, damp climate, many of them sickened and died and were buried on a little hill back of our home." They say more men were killed in the Civil War than all the other wars put together. Can you believe that? And I understand that most of them died of uh, diseases. I entered the house, a deserted dwelling, which was filled with the sick. Many were rapidly failing. I saw many there who appeared so intellectual and highly educated, who undoubtedly were bright ornaments to the society in which they moved, leaving the world in such a place. I involuntarily breathed the prayer to their creator who knows all to be a propitiator for their souls. Teardrops falling in the 
snowdrops falling in the snow. And it was just a cold, wet year, which made the turnpike a sea of mud and made it very difficult for both armies to supply their men. From Cheap Mountain to the railroad at Grafton, the Federals had almost 60 miles of turnpike to negotiate to bring supplies, and the Confederates had more than that from their base in the Shenandoah Valley. It was always a problem. When armies would move in the field, they would have to make up with local resources any shortages they had. They would take anything. They, they just lived off the land, you know. Anybody's cattle was fair game. When they camped here that summer and fall, they burned every fence rail. They'd just take those and use them for their campfires. All of that was considered fair game. You know, the Army had to keep moving. And if the civilian population had something that they were willing to give to the troops, well, then they would use it, of course. And sometimes if they weren't willing to give it, it was taken. A lot of the young men were off fighting, and the people that stayed home were trying to hold on to what they had, and, you know, they'd raise their crops and the armies would come through and take them, and they'd send raids up the turnpike. Beverly was raided four times after 1861, and two of those were successful that the Confederates took the town. They couldn't hold it for long. We had no base of operations to hold on to it, but the biggest one was the Jones and Bowdoin raid in 1863. They came through and took Beverly and held it for about two weeks and took lots of cattle and horses and supplies of all kinds and took them back to Virginia. When Jones reached Philippi, he sent a company back to Virginia and they took with them more than 3,000 cattle and 1,200 horses that he had captured since his raid had started. The Civil War was just very, very hard on people back then, even if they didn't fight it. They just lost a lot, and uh, it was just a very stressful period in history. Then we'll go back to Old Stonewall Jack. We'll get a permit and we'll go in bushwhacking. It's hard time. There were also local partisans. Some became what were known in the federal terminology, bushwhackers. The bushwhackers were a very formidable enemy, particularly in the Cheat Mountain area. They were local people who were terribly disenchanted with this loss of freedom by invading armies, but they seemed to focus against the federals. They knew the land, they were expert outdoorsmen, crack shots, and they would hide along the turnpike and ambush Union soldiers and strike and then disappear before they could be caught. So they were probably the most feared enemy of the Federal Army in Western Virginia. And it was very difficult to catch them. When they were caught, they were dealt with severely. We'll kill all those Yanks, we'll take all their goods, and then we'll skedaddle back into the woods, and it's hard time. And there was guerrilla warfare in and around the turnpikes long after the main armies had moved elsewhere. April 19th, Sunday. Received orders to cook rations and be ready to march tomorrow morning at 4 o'clock. The tramp of the war steed is heard in those valleys, and at early morn a thousand echoes are awakened by the roll of the drum. O oh, peace, when wilt thou reign again? I'm calling on you now, Lord. Please hear. 
help me climb that mountain and I'll be home before too long. Lord, help me climb that mountain and I'll be home before too long. It was the mountains that beat them, the mountains and the cold, and they just froze. I mean, you can imagine. And so when springtime came, they abandoned it all. The, the Confederates left Allegheny, went back down the turnpike towards Stanton. The Federals followed them. They were just delighted to get out of there. They never tried to hold those mountaintops again. They learned their lesson. And the Confederates then joined up with Stonewall Jackson's troops who were coming up from Monterey. And they had what we consider the last battle of the Stanton-Parkersburg Turnpike campaign there at McDowell on the Turnpike. The Confederates repulsed the Federal attack there. And that's considered then the start of Stonewall Jackson's Valley Campaign of 1862. Stonewall Jackson will turn the tide for the Confederates for a while. By 1863, there was a new state. We took the opportunity, you know, in 1863, when we were in the middle of the Civil War, to withdraw from Virginia. Virginia had seceded from the Union, and we seceded from Virginia. But if the Confederacy had won, we would still be Virginia. Now, in this diary, I've skipped forward again through all the other engagements that Mr. Hall was involved in. Having been at the Battle of Philippi and Laurel Hill and Camp Allegheny and all these various engagements in the very earliest days of the war, he was there at Appomattox for the surrender. Having been captured at Gettysburg in some of the most terrible action of the war, now he is at the surrender. Dear Eleanor, I take pen in hand Write a few lines from this battle-scarred land In my ragged old tent I lie here alone Without you, my dearest old friend Will you still love me when I'm back from the war? Will you throw your arms around me like so often before? Of course, you can think back to his melancholy words, hoping the war would soon be over, clear back in 1861. It's now April of 1865. How strange, the grand old army of Northern Virginia, the heroes of a hundred victories and of worldwide fame, surrendering to the enemy. But the grand old army is not here. It is dead. From its 60 or 70,000, it has dwindled down to 15,000. It is all over now. We are now allowed to go home on parole, transportation being furnished us. Our Corps commander made us a short address this evening, giving us goodbye, etc., and extolling the virtues of General Lee's heroic army. He said he could look to heaven and feel justified in all that he had done. April 11th, today General Lee's order relative to the surrender was presented to us. April 12th, 1865, we marched out within the Yankee lines this morning and stacked our arms. Saw several acquaintances in the Yankee army, some of my neighbors, 
continued our march to Lynchburg. The Yanks issued us rations without any limit. My mind wanders back to the hills that I live, and in my memories I see thy sweet self. And I think of the pleasures that once we had known the happiest times of my life. Will you still love me when I'm back from the war? April 25th. I walked down on Elk today. Powerful glad to see the folks at home. It seems a little odd that I am here after being absent so long. April 28th. Went fishing. And that's the last two words of the diary. You've been listening to Holding Rugged Ground, researched, written, and produced by Carrie and Michael Klein at Talking Across the Lines Worldwide Conversations in Elkins, West Virginia. This is a production of the Stanton Parkersburg Turnpike Alliance with financial support from the Rich Mountain Battlefield Foundation and the Federal Highway Administration. Executive producers are Phyllis Baxter and Michael Smith. For the Stanton to Parkersburg Turnpike Alliance, I'm Michael Klein. Thank you.